This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. Thursday, November 7th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Bill Gates, in a chat with the New York Times' Andrew Ross Sorkin, made the ultimate humble brag. I've uh, paid over $10 billion in taxes. I paid more uh, than anyone in taxes. Uh, but- the crowd's laughing, but it's true. And Gates wasn't playing this for laughs. The disclosure was an answer to Sorkin's question about Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. Gates continued. If I'd had to pay 20 billion, it's fine. Uh, But, you know, when you say I should pay 100 billion, okay, then I'm starting to do a little math about uh, what I have left over. Sorry, Uh, I'm just kidding. Only kidding, only not kidding. Andrew Ross Sorkin, by the way, is co-creator of the TV show Billions, So he knew what he was getting at. The Warren tax could add up to $100 billion. Though Warren tweeted to Bill Gates later, quote, I promise it's not $100 billion. Well, how could you make that promise? I mean, one way is for the plan to be pretend all along. Maybe she's just acknowledging the plan won't actually go into effect. She doesn't really plan to implement it. She's figuring Congress won't pass it. Maybe she figures the courts will find it unconstitutional. But if none of those things are what she's saying, if you just do the math, it seems like it could be $100 billion. Here's the math. The plan taxes the wealth of billionaires at 6%. Starts off a little lower for the 50 millionaires. Once you get to a billion, it's 6%. Gates has almost $107 billion. I don't know. From the time I started this sentence to now, maybe he has over $107 billion. So if you calculate 6% depreciation a year, which is sort of the opposite of compound interest, and if Bill Gates lives to be 93, which is an age I chose because that is the age of Bill Gates Sr. now, who's still kicking around, then Bill Gates will have surrendered $88 billion to the federal government. Now, when I posted this calculation on Twitter, I got a variety of responses. Everyone was upset with me. Many said, Bill Gates will be fine. Yeah, it's not the issue. The issue is, might the Warren wealth tax cost him $100 billion? Several people noted that I'd made a mistake because I didn't realize that Bill Gates' wealth accumulates even through passive investments. I did realize that. I was just trying to be as fair as possible. In fact, to make the most conservative estimate that I could. If you even account a little bit for the fact that Bill Gates' wealth will surely grow via investment, even as he surrenders some of his money in taxes, it's almost certain that Bill Gates will wind up paying $100 billion in taxes if he lives to be the age his father is now. Unless Warren isn't serious or is acknowledging that her tax plan won't be implemented to the degree that she's campaigning on. The most common comment on my calculation of Bill Gates's tax bill is good, good. Well, okay. I'm not weighing in on good or bad. I'm weighing in on the $100 billion bill for Bill. And yes, that could be the bill. If Elizabeth Warren is as serious as she says she is, and if the American people are serious about electing her. On the show today, I spiel about the shortcomings of presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. I realize I've been training my sights on the candidate with the $50 trillion tax plan, but just because Buttigieg says that's a bit much doesn't mean that he's enough. But first, in our ongoing series of interviews with presidential candidates, we're joined by Montana Governor Steve Bullock. 
We get into pennies, king copper, and the answers that one might give to a national audience and how they might change when asked the same questions to the people of the great state of Montana. In fact, we conduct a pretty airtight experiment on that score, as you will hear. And here is Steve Bullock. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Steve Bullock is the 24th governor of Montana. You may have heard he's also running for president. He has a very boot-based stump speech, which is odd, given that there is no syllable of his name that has a boot in it. And also, Montana's not shaped like a boot. That's Louisiana. But it's about the fact that he wears boots and he represents the people who wear boots. And we need to, of course, boot the current occupant of the Oval Office out. Governor Bullock joins me. Thanks for coming on. It's great to be with you tonight. So I'll start with uh, I'll start with a little bit of a softball and one that you can handle, but watch for the twist at the end. So as we survey the political realities of the moment, why do you think you will be the best candidate to beat President Mike Pence? <laughs> well, I'm the only one that actually won in what was a Trump state. He took Montana by 20. I won by four. 25 to 30 percent of my voters voted for Donald Trump. I've been able to bridge divides with, you know, majority Republican legislature to get progressive things done. But really, this race comes down to this about math. If we can't win places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, we're not going to win this election. So be it uh, Trump or Pence, I think I have something unique to the field if we're actually going to bring back these Obama-Trump voters that we need to get. You have said uh, in this interview and before that you've shown an ability to win in a state, the only candidate who's won in a state that actually voted for Trump. You know, you win by 4% as he wins by 5%. So this means something. He won by 20. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Excuse me, correction. But I wonder if one of the reasons that you could win in a a red state, a state that Trump won, is because you pursue policies that the Democratic electorate, the Democratic voters, by and large, don't like. For instance, this is a reality of being the government of Montana, and I acknowledge that. But, you know, if you look at the statistics, Montana has the sixth most CO2 emissions per capita. Uh, Montana has a, and you have endorsed a different environmental agenda than maybe is the, then I would say definitely is the mainstream of the Democratic Party. So how much is your success because you do some things that a mainstream Democrat might not like? Well, now look, because we've also doubled the amount of wind just in the last six years. We quadrupled the amount of solar uh, we're part of the overall state climate alliance, and we've, we're outdoors, folks. Like, we see what needs to get done. We have that CO2 emissions in part because we have the second largest uh, coal-fired generating plant west of the Mississippi, half of which is going to end up closing by the end of this year. I yeah. think that if, look, if, if at the core of that word progressive is actually making progress in people's lives, what we've been able to do with education, what we've been able to do with – Healthcare, what we've been able to do with um, kicking dark money out of our elections, 
I take that against anybody in this field because I think in times Washington D.C. has become this place where you give a good speech and you say, "Oh, wasn't that a big victory?" Well, it doesn't impact people's lives. So I think that in part, certainly, um, I've tried to connect with folks, not just saying those that went to college when you have two-thirds of people in this country that have no college degree. I've tried to actually go out it. You know, I go have to go both in running for office and in campaigning to places where it doesn't seem like there's a Democrat in sight. But I show up, I listen, and I respect perspectives that are different than mine. And I don't know that we're always doing that as a party. So the power plant you mentioned, I think that's the Talon Energy plant. Is that right? Yeah, Coal Strip. Right. Coal strip. Okay. This is the sixth largest source of greenhouse emissions in the United States. Half of it, units three and four, I believe, will remain in operation as one and two close. What was your stance on that? Were you sad to see it go because of the jobs picture? Well, I think one of the things, and this ought to be a lesson for all of us, is that when this happens, you can't leave communities behind. So we've been working both you know, you got folks that have spent their whole life powering this country. Like, we have to address climate change, first of all. Like, recognize in the West, fire seasons are 78 days longer than they were about 40 years ago. And we're outdoors people. We see it every single day. But we've also worked to try to figure out, as that community transitions, how can we create opportunity there? And that's everything from hiring people with skills to do the cleanup and making sure that they're paid a decent wage to bringing in federal dollars and others to look at what community transition looks like. And I think we have to do that not just in state like Montana, but all across this country. So Coal Strip, which guess how they got their name and what, what their job is. I want you to think about a 10-year-old in Coal Strip who sits at the dinner table and hears mom and pop and says, the future is not looking too good. And he looks you in the eye and says, does he have a future in Coal Strip? What do you say to him? Well, in that community, because it's a beautiful community. And it still has both the potential for and beautiful community with good schools, good hardworking people, everything from manufacturing to what's going to be used on that line afterwards, uh, the big transmission line along the way, that absolutely. And that's we can't, you know, one of the things you look at it over the last decade, about two-thirds of the counties in this country lost businesses. And folks saying, do I really need to leave my community or my place of worship just to make a decent living? Like if we're forgetting about rural areas, if we're not actually saying how can we try to have viability there, well, the disconnect in this country, forget about the politics, the disconnect in this country is only going to get that much greater. So are you, would you be reassuring to the 10-year-old, because who doesn't want to reassure a 10-year-old, first of all, but would your reassurance be based on the fact that there are other, better, different, cleaner, more future-oriented industries, or would your reassurance be in part by telling him that long-term you know that coal and fossil fuels will be part of the future? Well, I think, no, look, science has to drive this at this point. You know, IPCC says we got to be net zero emissions by... 2050. I've said the U.S. could do it by 2040, maybe even before. Now, the scientists even say that you'll have some carbon use by then, but we also have to explore things like carbon capture along the way. There's been more technological changes probably in these microphones that we're talking into in the last five or six years and how we've generated energy from fossil fuels probably, well, especially coal in probably the last 40. So I certainly wouldn't tell that 10-year-old, 
count on it, like count on coal being part of this. But I would say that there is going to be great opportunity in your communities because we need to make sure and do everything we can that we're not leaving communities behind. So I think that's a good answer, and I agree with it, but it's not the answer you gave when you were asked that exact question in a 2016 debate for governor. You did say long-term we know that coal and fossil fuels will be part of the future. For the purpose of this question, I want you to view me as a 10-year-old from Coal Strip mm-hmm. who sits at the dinner table and hears mom and pop talking about future's not looking so good. So the 10-year-old looks you in the eye and says, under your leadership, do I have a future in Coal Strip? Yeah, I'd say that 10-year-old, yeah, you do have a future in Montana and in Coal Strip. I'd say that 28% of our country's coal reserves are right here in Montana. I'd say to him that long-term, we know that coal and other fossil fuels will be part of our energy future. Which, to me, gets at the idea that you won in Montana, in part because you said things that appeal to the people of Montana. Now that you're running nationally, you're, I'm not saying contradicting yourself, but you're at least emphasizing different parts of the answer. And shouldn't voters take that into account? Look, and even uh, in long before I got into this, yeah, I've worked with other states. We led carbon capture, the initiative for the country to say what might happen going forward, recognizing that technology changes. And, and I think that you've seen more coal plant closures and more coal companies going bankrupt in the last two and a half years under Trump than it was under Obama. And in part, that's market forces. In part, that's natural gas. In part, it's if we actually look at this and say, we can't wait another 30 years to address climate change, but let's not just talk about it as a climate crisis. Let's talk about it as a climate opportunity create jobs, to not leave communities behind, then I think that we're going to come closer to actually doing something about it, not just talking about it. So you mentioned money in politics and how Montana has addressed that. You glanced over it. I think it's a gigantic accomplishment. We had the director and one of the main journalists behind the 1918 documentary, Dark Money, on. And it really is a huge achievement. I don't know how much listeners know, but if I was talking to you a hundred years ago, I could just assume that you as governor of Montana would essentially be on the payroll of King Copper. And now you you have passed, your state has passed some of the most aggressive progressive laws against dark money. Tell me why that's scalable to the national level, especially since the Supreme Court has a ruling right now called Citizens United. Yeah, and I was actually attorney general when Citizens United came up, took you know, states, Democrats, and Republicans, and wrote the brief on behalf of the states and took the first case up to the U.S. Supreme Court after Citizens United and lost on a 5-4 decision. But what we did do is at least undisclosed money, dark money, we've kicked it out of our elections, saying 90 days out from an election, if you're going to spend in elections, you have to disclose where that money comes from. I think it is scalable on a national level. First, to step back, look, this isn't a fringe issue. We're just talking about climate change. The first George Bush talked about the need to address the greenhouse effect from the White House effect. Newt Gingrich, when he was speaker, talked about 
needing to address climate change. I think it's money in politics that's made it so the Republican Party is the only major political party in the world that does acknowledge climate change is real. And you can talk about gun violence, you can talk about health care, you can talk about income inequality. For so many of those issues, it is a corrupting influence of money in the system. I think how you change that, we also, by, by executive order, I signed an executive order that said, I can't tell you corporations you can't spend in our elections. But if you want to bid on a state contract, you just have to disclose every single way that you're spending or contributing to impact those elections. Think about if you did that at the federal level. They contract with dang near every company in this country, in this world. And at least you're going to add sunshine and transparency as you're taking other steps to curb the influence of money in the system. Now, I need to ask you, as a governor of a state where copper was king and still a big industry, I ask every candidate this, as president, will you do away with pennies? You know, not just because the parochial interests of (laughs) copper mining. I got a sentimental feeling for pennies. I'm not going to get rid of pennies. Really? They cost more than a penny to produce, and what do they really do for us? Well, I I hope as you're walking down the streets of the city, if you see a penny on the ground, you pick it up. I do it each and every time, and it's there may be that sentimental attraction to the penny that I'm just not quite ready to say I'm going to get rid of it. If you do get the nomination, the first executive action that you'll carry out is to pick a running mate. Now, if we look at your track record as governor, your first lieutenant governor was John Walsh, who ran for Senate and was revealed that he had he had plagiarized portions of a research paper at the Army War College, and that re- led to the uh, revocation of his master's degree. Then you had another replacement, Angela McLean. Your relationship soured. There are emails attesting to that. Should voters be worried about your ability to effectively carry out that responsibility? No, not at all. And I'd look for somebody that um, brings different experiences than I that could step in on day one if something happened mm-hmm. and doesn't have my background. Like uh, Mike Cooney, my current lieutenant governor, who's now running for governor, I think you know he's, he's demonstrated he's been a great partner in governing along the way. And I think that at the end of the day, folks will look at both what I've been able to do, how I've been able to bring people together, and we're going to have a good abundance of good people that could serve as running mates. If you win, if any Democrat wins, what do you worry about in terms of the wreckage that the Trump administration will have left behind? How easy will it be to dig out of? Maybe in ways we're not even considering, like, I don't know, morale at the State Department or the fact that the Energy Department has gone unstaffed and understaffed for however many years. No, I think that it's going to be significant issues. I mean, just our country standing in the world, both a post-World War II order where allies thought our word meant something, it's going to take significant rebuilding to do. Now, it took some rebuilding to do when Barack Obama came in, but it's going to be that much more. What's happened to government along the way where – yeah, I did my first state of the state, and I started out, and I said, my name's Steve. I work for the state. Just <laughs> like thousands of others, I get up each day and do service. And this administration has had a war against all federal employees along the way. And I think also just the deep divides in this country that are going to exist. To make people actually believe this 243-year experiment called representative democracy, when we have divisions, forget about Twitter, forget about cable news, think about how politics is dividing Thanksgiving dinners or time at a bar or a coffee shop. I think Mm -hmm. there's going to be great, incredible work that needs to be done. But 
you know, on my difficult days on the campaign, I say, well, it's only the future of representative democracy at stake. So if I have something to contribute to it, I sure as heck better be. Steve Bullock, governor of Montana, running for president. And to appear on the gist, he did not have to raise one dollar. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thanks for having me tonight. And now the spiel. As I was getting at there with Governor Bullock, as much as there is a frustration to not being given airtime and attention when running for president, there is also a benefit you escape scrutiny. Now, I've been scrutinizing the candidates, notably Elizabeth Warren and her health care plan slash wealth tax in recent days. William Galston of the Brookings Institution, alum of the Clinton White House, calls it the longest suicide note in political history. Zing. If you hear the show, you know that I have pushed back on some of the unfair criticism of Joe Biden. I say he's not a racist. I say he is a chronic hair sniffer. I say that is not a proper disqualification. But I also have told you earlier and more frankly than most others that he's clearly suffering from cognitive decline. In fact, I played a lot of tape. I broke down the nature of his fractured syntax and his flawed reasoning. But what about Pete Buttigieg? I've mostly complimented Pete Buttigieg. I do think he's impressive and articulate and his policies seem plausible. Plus, when he was on The Gist, he acquitted himself pretty well, though he dodged the penny question. But there is fair criticism to be lodged at the young mayor of the small city. And part of it is that he's the young mayor of a small city. So let's first talk about city size. This distresses me less than Buttigieg's age. For instance, at the founding of America, New York City had about 100,000 residents. In 1810, DeWitt Clinton was mayor of New York City. He ran for president. He lost to James Madison pretty narrowly, 89 electoral votes to Madison's 128. That was the election of 1812. He would have made a good president. He was a very good politician. He was capable. And he served a city the size that South Bend is now. So it's not the number of people. And also think of this. We just heard from Governor Steve Bullock. Governor of Montana. Oh, that's impressive. Governor, governor of state, real state, bigger than seven other states. Well, you know, if you look at the population of Montana and you compare it to the population of California, the ratio is about 40 to 1. The ratio of Montana's population to nine or 10 states is greater than the ratio of South Bend's population to Montana. South Bend is small, but that alone does not worry me. But South Bend's size does say something about Pete Buttigieg's experience insofar as South Bend is a stepping stone for an ambitious and capable politician, and Pete Buttigieg hasn't been able to step on it. He hasn't had the chance. His next logical step is to be a senator or a governor, but he's going straight for the White House. Plucking someone from South Bend and sitting that person in the Oval Office is like making the jump from high school to the pros. And yeah, Kobe Bryant and LeBron James did it, but so did Dasanga Diop and James Lang and Corleone Young. The big problem with Buttigieg as one of the four leading candidates, the problem that gives me great pause, is that 37 years old is just not fully formed. It's not close. I fear it's insufficiently formed. Let's look at some good presidents. Maybe even you would argue great presidents, good or great young presidents. Theodore Roosevelt, our youngest president, was 42 when he ascended to the presidency after the assassination of McKinley. That's five years older than the age Buttigieg is now. Roosevelt had experience as a state assemblyman. He spent a year as New York City's police commissioner. 
He was gaining experience when he was 37, but he had yet to be appointed Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He had yet to charge up San Juan Hill. These were experiences in the bureaucracy and in the leadership role in battle that he would come to believe were among his most formative and stripped of those experiences, he wouldn't be nearly the good president that he was. John F. Kennedy, like Roosevelt, another scion of political royalty, had won a Senate election by his 37th year, had just married Jackie Kennedy, but he wasn't a father. He wasn't an experienced legislator. He was not quote-unquote, the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Profiles and Courage. The issue of civil rights was essentially years away. Eisenhower passed the first Civil Rights Act. It was in 1957, so this was years before that, when John F. Kennedy was 37. John F. Kennedy was years from being appointed to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That was the perch that earned him the status and respect that catapulted him into the White House. Steering us through the Cold War would have been so much harder Without that experience, Barack Obama, at Buttigieg's age, was in his first term in the Illinois State Senate. He hadn't run for the U.S. House of Representatives. He had no experience, obviously, as a senator. He was two years from paying his own way to the 2000 convention before he got his famous slot as the keynote speaker of the 2004 convention. Obama described why he ran for that state Senate seat. This way, quote, part of it was that the seat opened up. I was living in the district and the state legislature was a part time position. It allowed me to get my feet wet in politics and test out whether I could get something done. The test was going well, but it was far from complete. He wound up learning about interpersonal relationships and the power of persuasion. According to a rival Democrat from Chicago, Don Trotter, Obama arrived, quote, wanting to change things immediately, as though he intended, quote, to straighten out all these folks because they're crooks. But Mr. Trotter credited Obama with later trying to make himself more regular and, quote, trying to take himself out of his cocoon, his comfort zone, and not just pontificating through the press. These were all essential lessons to learn. The portrait is of a talented, talented young man with a lot of growth in front of him. Without this crucial experience, Obama wouldn't have become the president he became. He couldn't have been able to assume the toughest job in the world, especially if he hadn't failed a little bit in the political process and learned from it. When Ulysses S. Grant was 37, he moved his family to Galena, Ohio, and accepted a position in his father's leather goods business. He hated it. He was depressed. He needed the Civil War to give him experience. That's when he was Pete Buttigieg's age. So are we saying the exception to the importance of experience is this person, Pete Buttigieg, that for all his impressive resume and reasonable rhetoric, we have found the guy who doesn't need the seasoning of the statehouse or the exposure to seemingly intractable problems to be overcome. Buttigieg certainly seems brave in war as far as coming out. That, of course, requires bravery. Buttigieg has virtues. But virtues, unformed or untested, are just raw materials. No one walks into the job of president knowing how to do it. But it's great to have some life experience to draw from, an established playbook where you could say, look, it's not the same thing, but I remember that time in the Senate or that time in the governor's mansion or, I don't know, steering the U.S. fleet or running a Fortune 500 company that gives me an insight Perhaps 
a playbook to draw from as to the challenge of running a country of 330 million people that spends $4 trillion a year that prints its own money that has 2,000, almost 2,000 deployed nuclear warheads. And what is that experience? Oh, yeah, that time in South Bend where I turned uh, an old factory into a new building. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get to be commander-in-chief of an army of 1.3 million with 800,000 reserves? Well, I did run South Bend's police department of 160 officers. That's what? One eight thousandth the size? I guess that'll scale. Look, none of this is a knock on Buttigieg. It is a knock on 2019 and 2020 Pete Buttigieg at a time with the greatest need ever for a Democratic candidate. Pete Buttigieg is the only candidate, is the only centrist polling to a discernible degree other than doddering old Grandpa Joe. Three septuagenarians lead the polls. Only two of them have full mental acuity, putting aside the fact that one of them just had a heart attack. As for Sanders and Warren, one's a socialist, one has ambitiously socialist policies, and then you have Joe Biden and a 37-year-old. No one else is polling outside the margin of error. I would say it's a little frightening. The alternative, Donald Trump, is much, 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 much more frightening. But this is a time in America where in races, in states, and in cities, and throughout the land, Good Democratic candidates are winning elections left and right. I would say the lesson should not be that any old flawed Democrat can win. I would say the lesson should be that the time is right for the right candidate and the Democrats should worry about the paucity of great choices who might plausibly lead the way. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader. He would look that 10-year-old from Cole Strip in the eye, and then he'd take a finger and he'd poke it right in his chest, and he would say, well, is that a stain? And the kid would look down and he'd flick him in the eye because just because there's no jobs doesn't mean we can't have fun, you know? Christina DeJosa also produces The Gist. She wonders if Steve Bullock reboots his computer or just keeps it on overnight and hopes that the screensaver kind of cleans it somehow. The Gist would look that 10-year-old from Cole Strip in the eye and say, no, you won't be a coal miner, son. And then we'd look at his sister and say, and you won't be a coal miner's daughter. And then we'd look at his mama right in the eye and say, here's a couple extra coupons for an asthma inhaler. And then we'd look the daddy in the eye and the daddy would say, you eyeballing me, son. And I'd say, okay, my work is here done and quietly get my rental car and haul ass out of coal strip. Oomperadepperadupperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>